Hello everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. As the pace of technology innovation changes from linear to exponential, it is not only the old business models, governance models, management and technology models that are being crushed under the weight of outdated economics of efficiency that no longer make practical sense, but also old skills, old skill sets are also being rapidly declining in value and nearing its end game. A skill set brings humans, individuals, knowledge, abilities, and experience necessary to perform a job or work. Now, since old skill sets are declining in demand, they bring a very painful reality of lack of endgame strategies of declining nature of work. Now, since work is the foundation of society, when it changes radically and rapidly across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short, referred to as NGIOA, everything else that connects the society falls apart as well. So as we look around, we can see that the old systems, models, and way of doing things are struggling to survive as new way of doing things are emerging rapidly. This new way of doing things, new work, requires completely different skill sets and capabilities, approach, and expectations for the world that many don't even fully understand yet. So amidst the changing models of work and work structures, how do we create a new world where future of work is in sync with future of humans and humanity? How do we create a world where machine workforce and human workforce complement each other? How do we create a world that does not create a war between human workforce and machine workforce? To discuss future of work, an emerging battle between human workforce and machine workforce by further, I'm delighted to welcome Gary Bowles to this roundup. Gary is the chair of the future work at Singularity University and is the co-founder of E-Parachute. He's based in the United States. Welcome, Gary. We are so very honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Oh, it's so great to be here, Joshi. Thanks. Wonderful. So while the development of automation enabled by existing and emerging technologies brings the promise of higher productivity, higher profits, economic growth, increased efficiencies, convenience and safety, and all these you know, features, these technologies also raise very difficult questions about the broader impact of automation on jobs and skills and wages and the nature of the future of work itself. So how are technologies like robotics and artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning and uh, molecular manufacturing and uh, synthetic biology. How are they shaping how humans work, where they work and the skills they would need to work in the coming years? So no, it's a, it's a great question and it's, it's a big question. So, um, uh, and I, um, I, I think we're at such a unique time in human history because we, we have, you know, sort of this this uh, yin and yang of the challenges that we see, um, and and unfortunately, just sort of given the way this transition is working, the challenges are much easier to see than many of the opportunities. So it's it's easy to you know get completely depressed and uh, you know want to go off and have a drink because you you know we can't we can't foresee a, f a future where humans are going to have any work. Robots and software are going to take all jobs. That's sort of one way of, of one perspective. And then the other is, well, no, there's actually 
you have the completely opposite uh, possibility, which is what has happened every time in human history before, which is that there's tremendous amounts of opportunity that are created. And, and the answer is that we don't know, but there are a number of things we actually do know. We actually have some pretty good sense of how some things are mapping out now. And so I'd like to I'd like to offer you know what I what I call a cautiously optimistic uh, vision for the future of work and and talk about some of the mechanics and uh, without overlooking or downplaying any of the negative challenges that you're talking about, it, but instead thinking about how we can actually understand those mechanisms and the way to change the way that they work. So that's the you know that that's my framing for this. Um, and so I'll just go. Just specifically what you were asking about in terms of the um, you know this transition so the the way I'd, I'd like to think about it is you know as humans we've actually gone through this kind of transition before we used to at least in the United States in the mid 1800s uh, up to 70 percent of all economic activity in the United States related to the agricultural industry and uh, so if we were standing back at that time you and I and I said, well, the next 150 years, we're going to have this thing called an industrial economy. Uh, we're only going to have uh, two to 3% of all the people in the United States will still have anything to do with agriculture. Now, the other 98% are going to be doing these things called corporations and working in businesses. And we're going to have institutions like high school. And, uh, and then all these, this, this, these newfangled technologies are going to dramatically change the way we all live our lives. And oh, by the way, we have to come up with jobs for 3 billion people around the world in the next 150 years, I think we would have a failure of imagination. And, uh, and, and that's where I think we are today, is we can see the initial impact of automation and globalization because they sort of work hand in hand. Uh, and and we, we see all of the draining of uh, human work that that impacts. We can't yet really envision all the different ways that there is going to be new work opportunity that's created. Uh, and, and so we tend to sort of think of the dystopian or the negative view. And if I can offer, you know, maybe a little bit of a, of a different perspective, if we think of this instead as a market shift. So we have a market, a work market, the way we pay people for work, that's still largely dependent upon a lot of analog processes, processes that are holdovers from that uh, industrial era. We're shifting to what I call a digital work market. That is a market that's going to be much more infused with technology. Technology is going to allow us to be able to perform tasks we'd never envisioned before. And that economy is going to behave in certain ways. So if we think of it instead, not as disruption, but as this shift from this old uh, market economy to this newer kind of market economy, and we can understand those mechanisms, we can actually design a better and more beneficial future for humans in the way that that's going to work. And that is the that is the goal here that we want to create a better future for the humans. And you are absolutely right. This is not the first time we are going through this kind of automation. But the nature and level of automation that we are going to see in the coming years is entirely very different than what we have seen in the past and progress and development in technology and technological right. innovation has always happened. So this is not something new, but this is less about technological innovation and more about the manner in which we decide to use the existing and emerging technology. So what forces of technology innovation do you see are defining and determining 
the shape of the future workforce today and will define the shape of the workforce in the coming tomorrow? So uh, there's a couple of ways to think about the uh, development and adoption of innovative technology and then human skills. So let's take those separately. And because you asked first, I'll, I'll focus on the technology aspects. So what we've done, a, a significant portion of the automation, the especially the high-tech driven automation, but it's not just robots and software. There's tons of others, uh, what we call exponential technology. Um, there's digital medicine. There's uh, new forms of energy. Uh, the, 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 there's a range of different technologies that are not just rooted you know, deeply in um, robotics and machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, as a matter of fact, there, there's all these technologies sort of interplay with each other, and that's what helps to increase the pace of change. So the first thing I think it's important for us to understand is how does that innovation happen? What are those technologies? What do they typically focus on? What problems are they trying to solve? And then what are the ways that that's likely to continue and how then does that affect human work? So with the technologies that we're developing, in large part, the way that innovation gets funded, especially venture capital backed technology companies, is the, the most likely way you as an entrepreneur would get a company built is because you see something that people are spending money on now and you've found a way to increase efficiency or to do something in a completely new way that is at least 10x better, it's 10 times better or cheaper or faster than the old way of doing things. And so when we have that kind of mentality about innovation, the good news is that we can have tremendous leaps in innovation that never would have happened before. And the great example is uh, autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars and trucks. That's actually a combination of about a half a dozen different technologies and basically looked at what humans do when they drive vehicles and said, well, how can we actually replace that? The plus side of that is that innovation happens very quickly. The downside of that is that the money is calibrated on saying, well, wait a minute, we spend all of this uh, you know, current uh, revenue for companies on human labor. And if we could just replace those messy humans, you know, do a bunch of the tasks that they were doing before, well, that's a really easy way to get a new customer. So I can go to you and I can say, well, you don't need to pay those those drivers. You know, in the United States, there's three and a half million truck drivers, about 50 percent of them do long haul, 50 percent short haul. And I can say, stop paying all those messy drivers and instead we'll have all these self-driving trucks. And so as a customer, you're probably going to say, hey, that sounds like a good idea. But that's where a lot of the innovation has focused in the past. And what we push people towards is to say, well, if we take the same amount of energy that we put into automating existing human tasks, and we instead put it on augmenting humans, supporting humans, helping humans to attain their full potential, giving them new superpowers they never had before, we can actually create far greater abundance in work than, than we might even have humans to do it. It's just that we have to shift our thinking in the kinds of innovation that we want to encourage. Yes, absolutely. And the young generation, young people today, they are so passionate about solving the big problems that they see around them. And then when we have these connected computers and computer code and internet, giving us that entirely new man-made cyberspace through which we can remotely control many of the tasks that you know we were doing physically, that is just the beginning. And then the, the data 
that we are collecting, it gives us such an insight into so many different patterns. So there is a whole new world. So it doesn't make sense to go back and do it in the same manual way that we were doing over the years. So yes, absolutely. The innovations are going to, you know, redefine and redesign all the systems and the way we do things, but across nations. So the reality is that the way work is being done is going through fundamental transformation because of all these amazing innovations that are, uh, you know, coming our way. And the innovators are, you know, trying to solve big problems that would eventually help humanity, not only today, but also in the coming tomorrow as we go towards space exploration and all that. So we are trying to solve big problems for humanity. There is no doubt about that. But as automation and digital platforms and other existing and emerging innovations begin to change, the fundamental nature of work and the workforce, how do you see the models of work and the work structure changing across nations? And what do you think will be, which model, which work model do you think will become the future of work? So, so uh, there's two components of that that I think are very important to, um, to sort of break down. And, and I use uh, the framing of uh, my good friend, John Hagel at the White Center for the Edge. And I talk a lot about unbundling. So if we think of the way that we shifted from that agricultural model, and incidentally, the model of work in that era was often a person with a range of different skills doing a whole bunch of different things in a day. If you worked on a farm, you typically were not just doing one thing, you were doing dozens of different things in a given day. So you used a wide range of skill sets. Only in an industrial era, as we scaled a lot of our processes that we started to specialize and have people do only one thing or focus on a specific set of tasks. So that's actually a relatively short period of time in, in, uh, in human history that we've had that kind of, of focus on specialization and scaling. And so that model from that era was around uh, three things, was um, with three basic chunks of our lives. Um, we ship, as we shifted into an industrial era, we had a big chunk of learning at the beginning of our lives because now we were doing things called careers and we had to have a whole bunch of information shoved into our heads. Then we had this big chunk of work uh, and we worked as long and hard as we possibly could. And then we left a little time at the end in what I call the period formerly known as retirement. And so that three boxes model of learning, of work, and of leisure at the end, my father actually wrote a book on this called The Three Boxes of Life. And what he talked about was that when he, when he wrote it 40 years ago in 1976, is that that model made sense in a certain period of time. But now that we all have information at our fingertips, we have these, uh, these digital distraction devices that we all walk around with that need to have a whole bunch of information shoved into our heads early on has actually changed dramatically. And so if we turn it on its side and we say it's lifelong learning, lifelong work and lifelong leisure, then there's a couple of things that immediately come out. We have to have continuous learning because there's no way I could teach you, if I took all those truck drivers that are in the headlights of self-driving trucks and we teach them to be software developers, in 10 years when software is writing software, we failed. And so instead, we have to help people to become lifelong learners so that they can continually do the new work, solve the new problems that will continually arise as the pace of change increases. And then we also have to be very intentional about our leisure lives and our families and our communities, because otherwise work tends to sort of take up all of it. And so when you talk about new models, what I say is that that old construct, for instance, of one person, one job, 
there will still be jobs in the same way there is still radio. But there's all these other things that you could be listening to in addition to radio. And so it's just one mode. It's one medium. And it's the same thing with work is, sure, there will still be jobs and there'll be one focus and one area that people will have. But that's one use case. That's one context. And there will be much more of what I call a portfolio of work. And you mentioned young people nowadays. They just naturally have figured this out. They're working on a startup on the side. They might have a day job. They might be driving for Lyft or Uber. They, you know, they're selling products on Etsy. I call that a portfolio of work. And that flexible way of assembling different pieces of work that reflect different aspects of you and together add up to have the kind of income and lifestyle that you want is an increasingly uh, you know, dramatically rising model. Uh, a survey was done by the Freelancers Union in the United States last year and found 40% of all people in the United States, all workers today, self-identify as independent. Well, that's a breathtaking number. It doesn't mean they don't have day jobs, but it does mean that they think of themselves as having a portfolio of work. Yes, no, very true. And you made a very excellent point that it is going to be lifelong learning. Now, the challenge is whether our education system is prepared to give that lifelong learning to all the individuals across nations who want to do that. I see a lot of innovations happening, you know, um, in the digital space that would probably provide that platform for the lifelong learning. But if we talk about our educational institutions, the traditional ones, they still are struggling in, you know, trying to identify what they should teach, what they should, how they should uh, change their models. So there is still uh, going to be a lot of uh, challenges that needs to be overcome when, uh, when we talk about the education system. But there are innovations happening in the cyberspace. And a lot of, you know, innovative uh, way of educations are being provided, like a uh, lot of uh, institutions are also pre providing free courses, you know, and so a lot of changes are emerging, but it's still only the beginning and we will still have to create that uh, uh, universal model which you know individuals will be able to accept it and then they would have the desire uh, to uh, do the lifelong learning because so far it was like you got one degree you got a job and you are done you just keep working in that so this is a whole new mindset and approach that they will have to achieve that it's not enough even if you get one degree you still need to continue learning because even the technology technical skills are going to be so rapidly changing it's like you learn one technology today is that going to be enough you know for, or sufficient for tomorrow it's not going to be because even the technology the you know in the cyberspace is changing so rapidly so when we talk about automation from your perspective what exactly is being automated today in the terms of processes you know that you see across nations or in industries or organizations or academia that uh, the individual worker or the workforce, human workforce should be mindful about. And what else do you think will get automated in the coming years that the students who are in colleges, that they should prepare themselves for that, you know, that even though I have a degree in history or, you know, government, I need to learn this because tomorrow, just by that degree, I'm not going to be able to get a, you know, good employment that I'm hoping for. So, uh, so there's a couple things in there. So you talked about education and then you're talking about automation. So let me, let me focus first on just the dynamics of automation uh, and, and a way to think about it. So uh, I, I, when I lecture uh, at colleges, I will sometimes upset uh, the, 
the faculty and administration because I'll say I, I don't really care that much about education. I care a lot about learning. And if you as an institution are a great place to help people to continue to learn, that that's that's the goal. And but education itself, many of the processes that we use were actually built in that industrial era model. Uh, as a matter of fact, around the, the turn of the 20th century in the United States, there was a tremendous amount of theorizing about what schools needed to be. And the only way we could teach a whole bunch of students in a fairly short period of time was to actually use industrial processes, to have one teacher at the front of the room, to have 30 to 50 students in the room, to teach them all exactly the same thing. It's the only way we could solve it. We can solve that problem in very different ways. The problem is that we're still using those industrial era methods in so many of our schools. And I separate out K-12, um, so primary and secondary education, from higher education because they're very, very different domains. Higher education, I wrote a long piece on this called Unbundling Higher Ed, is actually going through a tremendous transition as we speak. And, and that model is going to be much more, allowed to help people to learn much more adaptive ways to become lifelong learners. And I think we're going to see a lot of our existing institutions transition over the next five years very, very rapidly because the market demand is changing so quickly. It's much more of a need to connect that higher education experience with future work. And many institutions are not currently up to the task. When we think about automation and we think about what is being automated, it's actually very connected to what schools can do. So what is work? If we step back, we just think about, okay, so how do, how do we really think about work? Work is only really three things. Work is we solve problems, performing tasks, using our skills. So let me break that down. So a problem that somebody pays us for, and that's the only reason that we're workers. We're paid because we're solving a problem for somebody. Although um, I often say there's some kinds of, kinds of government work where we're actually creating problems, but for the most part, we're paid to solve problems. And so a problem can be something as simple as a dirty floor, and it can be something as complicated as a go-to-market strategy for a multinational corporation. How do we solve those problems? We perform tasks. So if it's a dirty floor, we go and get a broom and we sweep it. And then how do we perform those tasks? We use our skills. And so we actually have a range of skills. And they're, they're, they're broadly broken down into two different kinds. They're the skills where they're bodies of information in our heads, and that's typically what we call fields. And so you were talking earlier about skill sets when you were sort of setting up the discussion. And that's often what people mean when they talk about skill sets or skills is they think about fields. And so the example that I use is if you know brain surgery, it's probably not going to help you to uh, work on a car engine or hopefully vice versa. So that's a rooted, that's a body of information. So that's a skill that is locked into a field and we often call those knowledges or special knowledges. So that's one kind. The other kind are skills that are transferable. These are skills that are usable in a wide range of different situations, and there are hundreds of them, and they often are gerunds, so they end in ING, persuading, assisting, analyzing, um, devising. These are skills we can use in a range of situations. So if you were great at empathizing with people when you were young, you're probably really good at empathizing with people in a range of situations today. If you were good at analyzing data, if you were good at breaking things down, if you were good at engineering, these were skills that were used in a range of usable in a range of different situations. 
In the past, education was very focused on these special knowledges, but now we all have these these digital distraction devices that have huge amounts of information on them. So information is much more readily at our fingertips and these transferable skills that we left to just chance or sometimes are actually taught specifically in things like a liberal arts education. What is happening is the calculus, the, the scale between them, we need more of these transferable skills focused on in our lifelong learning situations because we will need to continually adapt to new situations. And so I talk about, you talked about the pace of change. I talk about that a lot. In a world of increasing pace, um, I've actually coined a, an acronym. Um, uh, so I say, we all need to be problem solvers because that's what work is. We need to be adaptive. We need to be creative and we need to be entrepreneurial. So we need to be problem solvers because that's why people pay us. We need to be adaptive because things are gonna change constantly. We need to be creative because that'll keep us ahead of the robots and software. Um, and, uh, and it's what makes us uniquely human. And we need to be entrepreneurial because we can't just sit here waiting for problems to come to us. Increasingly, we have to go find and solve problems. And so just so happens that, that, that you know, that's the acronym of PACE, uh, problem solvers who are adaptive, creative, and entrepreneurial. And so when we look at how tasks become automated, they're often very discrete tasks and those add up into a job. If we are problem solvers who are adaptive, creative and entrepreneurial, as we continually automate a range of different activities, as workers, we will continually go find new problems to solve. And as a matter of fact, if we're very entrepreneurial about it, we might find problems that our employer never knew about or that our customers never knew about. And we will be continually creating new work opportunities where none existed before. Yes, no, that's an excellent point that we all need to be not only lifelong learners, but like you said, you know, we need to have those transferable skills. We need to be able to adapt quickly and we need to have that entrepreneur spirit. And I, we see that in a lot of young people. There are so many entrepreneurs, you know, I see and I, I see my you know kids growing up also. How many different ideas they come up with, you know, every single day to try to, you know, uh, solve uh, world problems that they see. So, yes, I see that in the young generation. But the challenge is going to be with this, you know, uh, existing adult workforce. As the kids grow up and as the young people in uh, co from colleges, they come out, they're all going to come with that mindset, you know, and probably, you know, start getting ready for the uh, challenges and the new kind of workforce that they need to be prepared for and to solve problems. But the existing adults, you know, the middle age and, you know, the senior citizens, they, they are uh, probably, you know, it's going to be very difficult. Again, it's uh, there are exceptions, but uh, broadly, there's going to be very difficult for them to prepare themselves for the, you know, new kind of work and the new kind of challenges. That's where probably, you know, we'll have to struggle and, you know, figure out how to uh, get them ready for the, not only today, but the coming tomorrow. But as we automate and as we try to uh, use artificial intelligence to do some repetitive tasks and do some data analysis for us, the employers, and uh, they will have to see what is the cost factor to develop and deploy these technologies 
that automate and create a machine workforce and they will have to uh, compare it with you know uh, how many humans uh, are available that can do similar kind of work and uh, would that be cheaper or would the, to create this automation would be cheaper there is a lot of uh, you know factors that they will need to evaluate because uh, the if we look at the current you know market they still you know um, reward the companies based on short term things like you know how much profit they are making how much revenues they have so there is still a challenge because that those things are still you know short sighted and they are old model uh, whereas you know to automate and uh, to create this kind of uh, automation of the processes and new automated workforce or machine workforce is going to create need lot of investment so there is going to be internal conflict for the decision makers to you know how to decide where to invest and what kind of variables they need to see because at the end of the day they still want to satisfy their you know shareholders so there are huge challenges if we talk about the public companies the startups is a whole different ball game right so no it's a good question so a couple ways to think about this so my group um 10 years ago, co-founded something called SOCAP, Social Capital Markets, which was a conference intended to bring to a wide variety of decision makers, including investors and entrepreneurs and existing corporations, the opportunity to build businesses with a purpose. And uh, rather than thinking just totally about this issue of trying to meet the needs of investors um, for public companies and deliver quarter, quarterly results to instead have a broader calculus where uh, additional stakeholders were being considered in the decisions of an organization beyond just shareholders. Um, Jack Welch, the former head of General Electric said that you know, the idea that all that a corporation does is to exist to meet the needs of shareholders is, is the world's dumbest idea. Uh, and, and yet we have an awful lot of organizations that are calibrated around exactly that model. So if you instead think of an organization as something that is delivering value to a customer, and the only way you're going to deliver value to a customer is if you have great workers, uh, but you also work in communities and you also live on a planet. Those are all constituents. So shareholders, customers, employees, uh, your communities you work in, the planet, the partner organizations that you work with, those are all the constituents of the organization. And yet to choose just one of them and say, we're going to do it just for shareholders makes absolutely no sense. If you take great care of your employees, they will do tremendous work for your customers and you will be the most profitable company around if you do that right. If you empower them, if you help them to continually find new problems and to be adaptive and creative and entrepreneurial, then you'll have a successful organization. But if instead we think of them as labor, we think of them as a cost center, we think of them as an asset to be maximized, then we've failed because the, the end result, the end game is absolutely inevitable. You will automate every single task in the organization that you possibly can where it's cheaper to use technology over humans. Now, now, I personally don't believe that we're going to achieve that, you know, this, that dystopian future because I believe there's too many places along the way that we will see so many negative impacts from that, including widespread unemployment, including, you know, obviously we see tremendous inequality today, even worse inequality, um, that, that our, we, our systems are, you know, especially um, our uh, 
you know, the, the systems of, of our economies that are calibrated around, um, uh, you know, trying to deliver value to customers, we will actually recalibrate. I mean, we'll make new decisions. But right now, you know, it's, it, it, the jury's a little still out. We see a lot of automation of human tasks and not a lot of training of humans of helping them to be able to achieve their, their greatest potential. So we push a lot on organizational leaders having this broader view of the range of constituents. And then if you do that, all these other positive decisions that we're talking about, where you aren't just going to try to automate every human out of existence, are much more likely to occur. Sure, no, absolutely right. But see that the challenge that we have faced in the past and we are uh, facing now and hope probably will continue facing in the coming tomorrow is the accountability of the decision makers. Now, if you talk about corporations or governments uh, or, you know, academia, everywhere you see that, you know, cutting uh, cost uh, is the priority for them because they have to meet their, you know, shareholders uh, or whoever they are accountable to their expectations. So if you talk about corporation, they will just uh, lay off people. Uh, they they will not think about yeah. that how it is going to impact their current employees if they just lay off they will you know automate some processes and then lay off that we don't need you guys anymore uh, so then it becomes those individuals responsibility to go and figure out what else they can do how they can retrain themselves so our society our structure is not meant for you know this kind of transitions instead if we see the accountability in the decision makers corporation uh, if they start thinking that CEOs and level executives that okay we want to automate this process but at the same time we also want to make sure how to use our current workforce and how to help them transition so maybe tomorrow they can you know help not only our they are experiencing our company's model and our company's goals they can help us you know automate even better or they can help us you know transition or create new ventures new kind of uh, uh, entrepreneurship they will bring so there are a lot of uh, factors that decision makers should be thinking about but they lack the accountability they just think that the workers are human workers are dispensable they can get rid of them whenever they want to and now since work is the foundation of human society and everything else that we value as humans we treasure and we dream we and we take for granted and worry about is our fundamentally based on human ability to work and now if the traditional model of work falls apart there are a lot of things will fall apart what 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 are your thoughts on what else do you see falling apart for human society if we don't have this you know supporting structure it's all about change management we identify the risk we talk about risk and we need to have effective change management approach and structure and framework but nations at all levels they lag it if you look at you know global level national level local level even at enterprise level we don't have that effective change management model and when we are trying to create the machine workforce and automate a lot of our processes we are you know we need to have a very effective change management model which we just don't have it so um, no I, I think uh, you, you raise a couple of good points that I, that I think are probably more rooted in the combination of mentality and incentives yes. so uh, the you know if, if we have this mentality the humans are messy and expensive, and the more we get rid of them, the more you know, the, the more profitable our organizations will be. Uh, then chances are really good we're going to make the kind of decisions that you're talking about. If instead what we're looking for is 
understanding that the purpose of the organization is actually to deliver value to a customer. And the only way to do that is because you're going to have dedicated people that are going to you know, be, be constantly trying to adapt and create new value for customers. Uh, so there's a bunch of decisions that we want people to make that are going to be much more beneficial to society. And so what we've found is that uh, it helps to start these kinds of, of uh, processes, not so much with a change management mentality, uh, but with uh, you know, what we think of as, as an adaptive mentality, because you're right in that change management often talks about an existing state and a future state. And then what's the delta between them in the process to be able to get there. What we find is that if the pace of change is, is accelerating exponentially, there isn't a future state we can predict. And therefore we have to understand the dynamics of change because there won't be any future static state to get to. It's going to be constant. It's constantly moving window that we'll never reach. So instead let's all step back and let's talk about the world that we want to see and how we can have that. And so when we talk about this arena, I've spent the past year and a half talking to uh, anybody on the topic of the future of work and the future of learning and just sucking in a bunch of perspective and ideas and research. And, um, and so we're actually at a point now where we're talking a lot about the insights that we've gained from, from talking to all these smart people. And so what we've done is we've sort of said, well, why don't we try to simplify this and let's think about what the incentives are for everybody. So for, uh, and we've broken it down at the four levels. So we say there are issues for individuals, for each of us as people. There are issues for our organizations. There are issues for our communities and there are issues for our countries. So individuals, organizations, communities, and countries. What's, and, and there is for each one of them, there's a problem statement. So that's the problem domain. And then there's ideas around solutions. So let me give you an example of a problem for each one of these. For individuals, um, and we know this from 42 years of work with What Color Is Your Parachute? You know, the world's enduring career manual, which my father wrote, um, 10 million copies in print, 17 languages. We know a lot about how individuals make career decisions and how they can become empowered to continually go find or create new work. So we can talk about that separately. But the, the problem statement for individuals is, how can I find meaningful compensated work today and tomorrow? There's plenty of other issues, but that's sort of the basic one. For organizations, it's how can I have the talented individuals that I need today and tomorrow? And, and you know, sure, there's these other calculus around you know, shareholder value and that sort of thing, but we're trying to say, no, let's not worry about that. Let's focus on how will you have the talented people you need today and tomorrow? For communities, it's how can you be a platform on which your constituents can thrive? And that's true if you're a small town or if you're a large region. And then for countries, it's what are the policies and other macro issues that you need to track on so that you can have a beneficial future for all of your constituents. So individuals, organizations, communities, and countries. So that's the problem domain. Now let's talk about the solution domain. When we've gone through these kinds of processes before, for instance, when we started what we called SOCAP, uh, focused on social entrepreneurs and impact uh, and investors and uh, businesses with purpose, we had a set of ideas about what that would look like if it was an actual market transition. And many of the things that we thought might happen have actually happened. You have new forms of corporation, new forms of capital. You have entrepreneurs starting businesses with a purpose. You have existing businesses that are converting themselves to what are often called benefit corporations or B corporations. 
The same sort of things happen in the, in the future of work. If we think about what we want, which is that each of these different uh, stakeholders have what they want, we can start to create beneficial strategies. So one example I use is, uh, we, uh, the, the same is true for the United States as for the world at large, is about three years ago, we hit this crossover point where more than 50% of all people live in cities, what we would typically think of as a city. And what we're seeing in the United States is what I call the great backwash, which is a whole bunch of people moved to the city because that's where economic value was, but now it's really, really expensive. And so a lot of people are talking about moving back to you know, smaller areas. So what if you help a state like uh, California, and I live in the Bay Area and it's tremendously expensive and very, very crowded. Um, if you have the state of California create a policy that encourages businesses, organizations to hire individuals in communities in disadvantaged parts of California, like in the Central Valley, you will benefit a range of individuals who are currently unemployed. So that's an example of a strategy where you can guide policy to influence the decision-making of organizations to be able to benefit other communities and to help individuals. And so when we look at the problems for each of them, they're all solved by a strategy like that. And there are hundreds of strategies where if you just get a bunch of stakeholders all collaborating together, you can move the world. Absolutely. And that's what we believe is possible here. Absolutely. You made an excellent point. It's the collective vision that we need of the decision makers to figure out what are the problems and what kind of solutions are possible or available. And let's all work towards that. And the incentive point that you made is also absolutely right because right now for decision makers, if you look at the businesses, they just don't have that incentive to think about how, whether they should be also involved in you know their workers or the employees' uh, uh, careers or life or whether they should not just focus on that and they just should focus on uh, the bottom line, the money, the cost and revenues and profits. So that's that those are the different uh, criteria we need to change the approach and if we are looking uh, as a decision maker if uh, i have a corporation and i have thousand employees and i can automate some processes and uh, that can take away my responsibility of providing the health insurance and uh, providing uh, uh, the taxes on the, them and a lot of other you know social security benefits and all those things I can get rid of if I just can automate and have the machine workforce available. So there are right now, machines are not taxable. So human employees are taxable and uh, there are a lot of, uh, they need health insurance and the machines don't need health insurance. So there are a lot of uh, variables that employers and decision makers are looking at that just then excites them to automate and to create that machine workforce and not focus on the human workforce because that's where there is a lot of cost involved. So the bell we are not comparing apples with all. I mean, uh, it's not the same uh, comparison apples to apples. It apples to oranges. So the decision makers have a tilted viewpoint about where they should be focusing, whether they should uh, make the human workforce more intelligent and uh, get their, you know, uh, intelligence uh, and capability increased so that they can do much more productive, you know, output and the work and the efficiency and uh, they can create a lot of benefit for the corporation. But right now there is a tilted playing field and uh, um, that is one of the reasons why we don't see much involvement of decision makers. So we do need, to your point, that we do need a collective vision we do need a collective uh, intelligence 
to figure out what problems we need to solve and how we need to solve that and what options are available because at the end of the day what we are doing is for the survival sustainability of humanity and if we don't keep the focus on humanity and humans then we are you know missing the whole point why we are working so hard on creating this machine intelligence uh, to help us take to, to the next level so Uh, that is one point but when we look at now if we look at the developed world as well as developing world the the whole uh, variables are different starting from the geography to uh, what the maturity levels are how their industries are functioning what kind of labor pool is available what kind of human resources are available what kind of talent and skills that is available everything is different across each nation even not the developed and developing it's each nation so do you think that the promise and potential of automation of work processes are different and would be different in the coming years based on which nation and uh, uh, which geography and which uh, work pool we are talking about so yeah so i've i've, I've had the privilege of um you know just in, in the past couple of months um lecturing in Santiago, Chile, in Cape Town, South Africa, um, at embassies in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm leaving today for a lecture series in Europe. And, and what I see is a range of challenges and opportunities that are actually relatively consistent. The specifics of the dynamics of any economy and society are obviously, they, they vary, but there's a lot of basic underpinning. And so let me sort of break them down into some of the ways that, that I see it. So uh, at the end of the day, one of the dynamics that, that you're talking about is decision makers, typically in larger organizations, which already have big workforces. And what we see is that you're right, is that often the calculus is a constant, uh, a lot of decision makers are constantly looking for ways to reduce costs. And because you can look at what you're spending on humans and say, yep, that's a cost, <laughs> you know, and you can automate some things, then you're going to say, ah, okay, so we will be more productive if I automate humans and have less of them. But what is happening in many organizations, and this is true through, you know, for decades in, in uh, era after era, is that there is always asymmetry in work markets. And so by that, by I mean, and, and my economist friends hate it when I put it this way, but um, if you think of all of labor, like all of us workers, all the things we could do, all of our skills as being one circle in a Venn diagram, and then all the demand, all the need as being another, you know, it's, it's in perfect overlap. There's always work that is needed and there aren't workers to do it, or at least employers can't find them. In the United States, that's three to five million open jobs every single month, even in the worst of times. And there's always workers that are left behind. So you were talking about skill sets that were you know, rapidly evaporating. And that's, they, 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 it isn't necessarily that they, there is no work for them. It's that they can't find it or they, they don't necessarily have all the information they might need to be able to do it or to get hired for it. And then there are people who are working. And there are people who are making a lot of money, doing really well at the top. But then there are people who are not being paid very well. They still have jobs, but they're not making all that much money. We have all of those conditions today, like right now, even though in the United States, for example, it's 3% unemployment, but um, much higher unemployment for specific populations, such as um, inner city black youth and so on. In different countries as Spain, 50% unemployment rate for, for um, youth under 25. 
Um, you know, every economy has these massive asymmetries, and there are populations that are that are deeply affected. Employers, especially large employers, often make what we would think of as relatively rational decisions. And what they're finding, what they're looking for is this combination of how can I reduce cost and then how can I find these talented people that I need for tomorrow? What many employers are not doing of any size is making the investments in training and development and in, in uh, maximizing the potential of the humans that are working for them so that they actually can solve these problems be able to fill these positions or be able to use these workers that they say they can't find if they were investing more in continuing to develop the workers that they already have. And we're seeing, you know, pretty much low, very low rates of training and investment nowadays in the workforce. And that's something that employers must change their mindset on because it's the only way they are going to have workers, the workers of tomorrow that they need. And we're actually seeing very hopeful signs that many organizations are opening up their training. They're partnering with uh, next generation providers like Udacity to be able to create those, you know, to be able to develop those, those uh, workers that, that they need. So, so what is often the case is not so much that there isn't work available, it's that the workers of today could not rationally or quickly be able to learn what's needed to be able to do the work of tomorrow. Absolutely. So you talked about changing our educational systems. That's an absolute given. We must change the lifelong learning platforms. Yes. We can use technologies to help people and employers to understand, well, wait a minute, you've got all of this knowledge that is needed for this work. There's only this little additional work, uh, knowledge that's needed and all these transferable skills. Let's get you a nano degree in three months so you have all the additional knowledge you need and now you can go have that work. Well, the problem for older workers, as you were saying, 50 plus workers is, you know, uh, they followed in many cases, the old rules of work. They followed that three boxes model. I went to school or I got, I learned a trade and I got a job and I thought, hey, I was gonna work at the factory for the rest of my life. And then it went away. So what we need to do is we need to help them to understand that this is an opportunity for growth and for change. And that's a positive. There's a woman, a, a marvelous psychologist by the name of Carol Dweck, who basically says well, there's either Many of us either have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And if we have a fixed mindset, oh, well, I learned this trade and the factory goes away. And until the factory comes back, I'm not going to work. Well, that's a fixed mindset. And instead of growth mindset says, well, wait a minute, I'm a growing and changing person. I can learn all these new skills. What we find is that the most, the number one thing that that worker needs to be able to get them to commit to that learning process is some level of commitment that there's work at the end of it. And that is, you know, it doesn't mean that you're going to take every worker that used to work in a coal mine and train them to work on uh, clean energy turbines. But it does mean that if they see that there is opportunity at the end of a learning process, they are far more likely to dive into it. And that's something employers can change immediately. Absolutely. I think you made an excellent point. And the way I see it is that the colleges or the education system should focus more on how to learn and give that mindset and ability and approach, uh, a skill set for the individuals or students that they can, they, if they want to learn something, some new topic, 
how they should learn it, when they learn that new topic or new course or new uh, major, and how they learn it, that should be left to them, you know, entirely. The colleges, the monopoly that the education system now has, that only colleges can provide the degree. And only if you have the degree, then you will be able to get certain kind of work. I think that will probably uh, change. And hopefully it will change in the coming years. Because uh, if I learned, you know, let's, I learned microbiology in when growing up, you know, in my real world. And uh, I got a degree in microbiology. Then I did, uh, when I wanted to do my PhD, I wanted to do with a professor who was a professor in chemistry, but he was an expert in integrating the biosystems. He, he was an expert in using the microorganisms to uh, produce different kind of, you know, uh, products. So I, I wanted to uh, do my doctorate in uh, hydrogen production using halobacterium halobium. Now, the universities forced me that, you know, because you have a degree in microbiology, uh, bachelor's you and master's, you have to do only with a microbiology professor to do this uh, PhD work. And I said, how can I do that? Because he doesn't know anything about this. The doctor, a professor who knows this is a professor in chemistry, and he was heading the Central Salt and Marine Chemical Research Institute in India. And we both fought with the university that was affiliated with uh, uh, us to be a, to let me, you know, register with this professor for my PhD. So my doctorate thesis was printed ready, and I could not submit it with this professor because the education system won't allow that. They yes. they forced me to do with the other professor microbiology with whom I had done no work. He was not involved in my research at all. So I had to somehow, you know, put together chapters that were irre irrelevant and, you know, publish my thesis and got my PhD degree through him. Whereas all my actual work was published in international journals that was with these professors. And he did not get, but at the end of the day, he was very kind. He said, look, what we have done is marvelous. It's a, uh, you know, groundbreaking in India that, you know, we have done this kind of work. So don't worry whether you have PhD degree with me or, you know, with someone else, just go on with your life and do more, you know, fruitful things. So these kind of rigid, the, what you talk about rigid mentality and this challenge still exists. I mean, I faced this 25 years back, but now also I see that across nations in all kinds of institutions, there are so many rigid boundaries and we need to work on that. And especially when we are talking about the human workers and human skill sets, it's not that the human skill set is not available. If we look at narrowly within the rigid boundaries of our nation's geography, then yes, we may have problems. But if what we are looking at, you know, it's possible that, you know, other nation has plenty of that talent and skill set is just how to use that talent. So I think we are we need to focus on how do we create a model? How do we create a platform that without the challenges of you know immigration and migration, how we can use that workforce of you know and the skill sets that is available across nations so that we don't have to suffocate our projects and what we are trying to achieve just because we don't have that skill set available within our nation. And what you talked about is excellent point that employers should just focus on a little bit more how to retrain their workforce. And they probably will be you know, much more happier than they because the employees that they have are already experienced and they just need a little bit more skill set. So these are a lot of different kind of you know variables and challenges we have to evaluate. But do you see that these kind of platforms are you know being developed so that we can use the talent and skill set from across nations? So so the first deliverable 
is, you know, when I was talking about individuals, organizations, communities, and countries, the first deliverable is that individuals feel empowered to be able to, to find or create meaningful compensated work. So if, if we continue to have many of the top-down processes, and unfortunately, even in colleges, we have these sort of, you know, this sort of you know, industrial era mentality of producing students, um, it, we're, we're gonna find that the system simply will not adapt. That is a workforce in total will not become adaptive enough to be able to continue to do the work of tomorrow. So we must empower every individual you know, I, I keep using the, the, the acronym PACE, but we must empower every individual to be as adaptive and proactive as possible. So that's the first deliverable. Second deliverable is when work can be distributed, that's why I said at the beginning, it's really the combination of automation and globalization. So we've unbundled work. We've taken what used to be one job, one person in one location, and we've taken the different pieces of that work and sort of distributed and made it available to people in other places. That's why we have call centers. That's why we have distributed work, you know, ranges of different business processes that can be broken up and done by people and and uh, and software and robots around the world. So the, the market asymmetries will always be inefficient, <laughs> That is, it, you won't always be able to find the cheapest place to do this one particular thing. What, you, what we will find, I believe, uh, is that the, the tasks where the most creativity, the most collaboration, the most problem-solving skills are all needed, those will be the ones that will increasingly be put on some of these two-sided market platforms. Some of these, you know, there's a broad range of them uh, that, that focus on different kinds of problems or leverage different kinds of communities or different kinds of thinkers. And I, I, I firmly believe there are there's actually quite a number of these platforms, everything from uh, Upwork to Mechanical Turk. Uh, the, challenge, the challenges that we need to be thinking about with them is one, is it, does it offer work to people that is meaningful and that allows them to continually develop their skill sets and to develop new opportunities for themselves. Because if it's just about breaking up work to make it as cheap as possible and it's repetitive, you know, things that a robot could be doing anyway, we just haven't written the software for it, then that's that's actually that's only going to be useful to people that are at the, the bottom rung of Maslow's pyramid, people that just have to have any kind of work. So that's one thing, is how can we make sure that that work leverages what makes us human as much as possible and, and leverages our human potential. And then the other is how can we design these platforms in such a way that they are not a race to the bottom for income for those workers? Because that's what a lot of these platforms do. There are plenty of market platforms that allow anybody in one country that, that hopefully speaks English or you know in the languages of the employer to be able to find work online if they can demonstrate their capability in that arena. So if you had somebody learn to become a Python programmer in, you know, in, a, in a remote developing economy and, and they came on one of these platforms, they're indistinguishable from anybody else that's doing the same kind of work if they're really good at it. What's challenging is that uh, a lot of the, the way these these platforms are designed is that they allow people to compete against each other to find the lowest price. And that's actually one of the greatest challenges. I mentioned that you know when, in work markets, there's always people that are working, but they're not getting paid as much. 
Uh, that's actually very true in the United States. We've not seen real wage growth in the United States, uh, especially for people in the bottom three um, uh, uh, rungs of the ladder in, in the United States in terms of income. We've not seen wage growth since the 1970s. And that's what happens when employers can continually use their market power to just pay less. And, uh, and so these market platforms, there, there are some like Thumbtack, for instance, that are designed that, that actually do not have this race to the bottom element. Um, they're designed, for instance, just to help a worker to find a customer. Uh, we need more of that kind of thinking and design that ensures that workers will not just have meaningful work, but it'll be well compensated work that will allow them to continually, uh, you know, basically make more money. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> Sorry, and you made an excellent point. It has to be meaningful work. And uh, we are not looking, when we look at all these different variables, we are not looking at very rigid one kind of future that would emerge. We don't know exactly how this automation and all this molecular manufacturing and synthetic biology and how the new way of doing things, how it is going to shape up the coming tomorrow. So we are looking at many different future scenarios of work that we can, uh, we have to be prepared for. So if you are, if you have to advise the decision makers across nations, it's government industries, organizations and academia to prepare for the coming tomorrow, to prepare their human workforce, uh, to keep up with the machine workforce that's emerging, what would you what would you tell them? Where they should focus on? What kind of changes they should bring uh, within their nations? So, um, so, so when I talk about strategies at the country level um, and decision makers that are looking at it from a system standpoint, uh, first off, trying to develop perfect information about future demand is a fool's errand because we just can't know. Now, having said that, what we really want is a set of collaborative processes whereby a range of decision makers and providers are all talking together. And so, you know, we found this again with our initiative with SOCAP. We had entrepreneurs, investors, foundations, corporations, service providers. We brought them all together in a platform that could collaborate about a positive future of business with a purpose. And so we need to do the same things here. Um, that's why we call our initiative Fulcrum. We're actually focused on helping to enable those kinds of dialogues. And the, the, the challenge and opportunity for many decision makers, especially at a macro level in, in various countries and economies, is to not come up with the answer. It's not to tell a bunch of industries, you tell us what demand is going to look like in 10 years because they can't really know that. What you can do is put a set of processes in place where you will have that conversation and that, that uh, information on an ongoing basis. There is no future static state. Therefore, what you want is a set of processes where the employers, the demand, send stronger signals, signals to the market. Here's the kind of things that we're seeing we need. Here's the kind of skill sets that we need. We have done our analysis and here are all the transferable skills that we need. Um, and that gets fed into the providers, the educators, the online platforms, so that they are helping to be able to develop and workers can understand where the opportunity could be in the future. So the country of Singapore, for instance, has gone to, um, I think it's in its 12 primary industries, has gone to decision makers there and said, we want you to collaborate and share information on an ongoing basis to tell us in your arena what you're seeing demand is looking like. And then they're actually brokering that communication process 
with their educational institutions so that they are actually focusing on those skills. Every country needs to have similar processes. And as a matter of fact, those processes need to span countries so that organizations are continually sending stronger and stronger signals to the market, but not just thinking about it in terms of this sort of supply and demand thing. There's a whole nother part of the circle in terms of future opportunity that is based on entrepreneurism. So what, 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 we, what we don't want to do is just focus on existing large employers because they're a big part of employment today. But the truth is in any market where the net uh, scaled employment comes from is from small businesses that are being formed. And that makes a lot of sense. If you have two employees today and you have four employees tomorrow, you doubled. So, so that's where the new employment comes from. So if we encourage entrepreneurism, if we encourage people to be able to do business creation, if we encourage people to be able to band together to form guilds or to form dynamic corporations to be able to solve uh, new customer problems, all of those dynamics are critical for uh, decision makers at, at, a, at a macroeconomic level, um, the government at large scale level, government decision makers, to focus on trying to encourage that level of entrepreneurism and new business creation, because that is actually where net employment can come from. Absolutely, no, that's an excellent point. It's the ideas, imagination, uh, capability to imagine new things, a new way of solving you know, problems, new way of uh, uh, doing things, and then uh, innovations and technology and entrepreneurship is going to be the at the heart of you know not only today, but the coming tomorrow. And now human skills, are the constant amidst, you know, when we see automation and artificial intelligence and the machine workforce that is changing the workplace in so many unpredictable ways, not only today, but also in coming tomorrow, it is going to be fundamentally, it's going to be totally fundamental transformation. So one thing hopefully we can predict is that the human skills will be needed more than ever in certain areas. But at the same time, if we are investing so much in machine learning, Machines are kind of like kids right now. We are teaching them, training them uh, through all this, you know, and trying to create a different uh, learning curve for the machines so they can reach that level where they will be able to, uh, where we can reach the super intelligence. And uh, we are trying to invest so much in training machines. Why do you think that there is a need to invest in training individuals, not just in the learning skills and all that, but there are so many with the brain mapping and uh, the advances in neuroscience. There is so much uh, potential uh, for integrating the machine intelligence with the human intelligence, like putting chips in the human brain or, you know, coming up with different kinds of uh, uh, brain boosting uh, chemicals or uh, you know, medicine or whatever term they want to use, but there are a lot of possibilities and potential and options available. So do you, as we invest so much in machine workforce, do you think we should be focusing also on human workforce to make them more intelligent so they can, uh, you know, walk hand in hand with the machine workforce? We do need machine workforce, but we also need more intelligent human workforce. So do you see that we need to invest in the making our human intelligence uh, and focus you know, on making our human workforce more intelligent? So, um, I, I, I tend to, so, so the, the, the short answer is yes, there's tremendous opportunities to be able to help 
augment human intelligence to be able to provide tools that that can enable us to first to find our superpowers and then to develop new superpowers. Uh, but uh, but I, I, I want to maybe think a little bit about how to how to frame that, right? So I, I would stop short of you know. There, there are plenty of people that are thinking about putting chips in people's heads and that sort of thing. And it's very likely that we're not far from that. 10 years, 20 years, I don't know what the time frame is, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll probably solve problems like that. In the meantime, uh, what, where I think a lot of innovation needs to focus is first, most people do not know what their own best skills are. They just don't, especially transferable skills. Uh, so self-knowledge, Self-inventory, self-awareness is step one. So we need to help people very, and especially starting at young ages, to learn what their superpowers are. Are you really good at analyzing? Are you really good at persuading? Are you really good? We don't know those things. We're trial and error machines, and we often only discover them by trial and error. Um, you know, you you study you know a, a, an arena that I know nothing about. I can't even imagine where to start. And yet, to you, that you know, you, you can. You know, basically, these these terms just roll off your tongue, and I don't even know how to spell them. And so, each of us has different superpowers. We've got different strengths, different capabilities. We have certain weaknesses that we need to augment, and we but we also need to take those things that we're really good at and make ourselves even better at them. And so, first off, it's understanding, it's self knowledge. Secondly, it's being able to augment. And what we the way we call augmentation right now is we call that school. That's our learning that we we, we learn. Uh, we can increase the pace at which we learn. Uh, we're we're at the, on the cusp of advances in neuroscience that are breathtaking in terms of understanding how we form uh, memories, how we uh, understand and solve problems and so on. I've got uh, several courses on uh, LinkedIn learning uh, on lynda.com on the future of learning. And I talk a lot about the, the underpinning of the neuroscience and how we learn and the way we form memories. And we're on the cusp of seeing new ways that we can use technology to be able to, to upskill ourselves, to help ourselves to be much, much better uh, and, and to be able to learn much faster. So that's sort of the second deliverable is how can we learn faster and better? And as we have, we're in violent agreement, we need to tr dramatically transform our educational institutions so they become lifelong learning platforms. And opposed to these, you know, just these four, six, eight year periods of our lives where we're just immersed in learning. We actually need to be learning over the period of our lives. And that probably means breaking it up to, into more discrete chunks so that we don't, uh, you know, not, not all of us can afford to take eight years of our lives and pay a whole bunch to an educational institution and come out with a degree at the end. Nor is it guaranteed that there's work associated with that degree. And so we're going to have to figure out ways to break it up into more nano degrees and more just-in-time learning. The third area is in terms of in our work, how can technology help us to do things better? And I always use the example of um, in an Excel spreadsheet uh, or a Google Sheet, uh, a pivot table. How many even accountants can do a, a pivot table by hand? Like nobody. Um, you know, we just accept you need that to, to augment yourself. You need, you need to use those kinds of technologies. There are tons of places where we can be making technology so much more usable and accessible and helping people to develop superpowers they never would have had before so that they can solve new problems. And that's another area where there's a huge amount of opportunity, and I believe business opportunity, as we shift to this digital work economy. 
Absolutely. Yeah. No, some really excellent points. But again, it takes us back to the same challenge of the outdated education system. Because if we look at the kids starting from elementary school, they are all graded, you know, in, in a very different manner. The fo- whole focus of the education system is to not help uh, the individuals identify their superpowers, nor do the parents do that. Because the system just focuses on the grades and getting A grades and everything. And then even if someone is a math genius, you know, he still has to worry about his grades in English and history, which he, you know, is probably not interested, he or she. So he has to still worry about that and not focus on his strengths because at the end of the day, to get admitted into colleges like Stanford and Harvard and MITs, he needs to get, you know, proper GPAs and, you know, grades uh, that would matter. So our system, the point is our system is not designed to help individuals identify their superpowers. So that's where we are failing and that's where everything is becoming average because we are focusing on getting well-rounded kids, getting well-rounded skill set. And that's where, you know, if we are trying to define and uh, uh, identify these new, you know, innovators, Einsteins and all that, who are really intelligent in creating new kinds of things, who has uh, answers to solve the big problems that we are facing, then the current way of doing things is probably outdated and we need to focus on how we can recreate, redefine and redesign our education system and not only uh, outside where, you know, educators are involved, but also in the home where parents you know, how parents need to focus on uh, identity, helping their kids identify their super strengths. It's so such a difficult task because there is so much fear that if they don't focus on getting A grades for their kids, then the kids are going to fall behind. So having said that, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially those young minds, students who are so very passionate and concerned about solving big problems, but also concerned about the future of work? So uh, no, so I, you make some great points. So I want to, I want to, I want to say, I want to talk to three different people: <laughs> students, young people, uh, parents, and employers. So uh, when we write headlines that robotics and software will take 500 million jobs in the next 30 years, the message we're sending to our young people is: give up. There won't be any work for you. And I don't think that's true. I don't. I don't believe that's. I don't think that's the right message, and I don't think it's true, um, especially not if they will be, pro, you know, problem solvers or adaptive, creative, and entrepreneurial. Instead, what I what I want people, what I want young people to to understand is that the rules of work are changing very, very rapidly. You live at an amazing time where, sure, there there's a rapid pace of change, but the friction to entry, that is, the challenges of entering any particular field are so dramatically reducing that we're not even realizing how quickly people can do things. So, you know, the example is video production. You know, my, my son's about to graduate college. He has a drone. He's an amazing video producer. He's got, you know, tremendous tools that he can use to do, you know, extraordinarily high quality videos. That did not exist 10 years ago. You could not do that. You could not show that level of creativity and create these kinds of world-class products uh, 10 years ago. You couldn't start a startup without buying tons and tons of hardware equipment and hiring whole bunches of people. You could... So the friction to entry in so many markets and so many arenas is so reduced 
there's never been a time in human history where any particular young person has so many possibilities. So that's my message to the to, to young people is that this, you, you have been born at an incredible time where you have all these tools at your fingertips. And what is missing is that many people that, that you're interacting with have not yet gotten the memo. So the second group is parents, is when you talk about Stanford, you talk about in the US Ivy Leagues, or you talk about the best schools, what is happening for many parents is they all are motivated by the same thing, which is they want the best for their kids. And they say, I want my kid to be happy and successful. And what I say to parents is, that's great, drop successful, because success is probably your model. It's probably that old rules of work and so you look back and you see what success took in your time or in your parents' time, and you extrapolate it into the future and say, oh, well, that meant going to a great college, and that meant learning a particular field, and then having a career, and all of those things are changing. And But because parents in so many cases are trying to save what they believe is a lot of heartache for their kids and make sure they're going to be successful in the future... We're focusing on this model where we're shoving them into an education system that unfortunately in many cases is not preparing them for that future. And so for parents, I, my, my one message is chill out. Um, if you focus on your kid's happiness, if you help them to discover their superpowers, if you get out of their way and you just encourage them to become pro problem solvers or adaptive, creative, and entrepreneurial, you help them to solve problems give them the space to be able to go find the problems they most love to solve and the skills they most love to use, they will be happy and they will develop their own model of success. And then finally for employers, what we're finding is that if there's any one mentality we want them to change for hiring manager, not just you know the top level decision makers, but a hiring manager in any organization, even in small companies, is to focus on transferable skills. In many cases, we write job descriptions where we say it needs to have a college degree and it needs to have 10 years experience. And it, you know, I've literally seen job descriptions where somebody wants 10 years of experience in doing social media marketing to millennials. Well, there hasn't been social media marketing to millennials for 10 years. I mean, it's just not, you, you can't possibly ask for these things. Instead, what they are is they're, they're proxies. Um, uh, and and it, 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 you're basically trying to say what my father used to call tea leaves. I'm going to look in the past at what you've done in the past. I'm trying to project in the future to see that you're going to be successful. Focus on transferable skills because the special knowledges, the specific knowledges of knowing that arena deeply. Sure, there's plenty of arenas where you must have that knowledge. I don't want my brain surgeon to have just learned in an online course and walk into the operating room. But there are tons of work that can be done by people who have enough knowledge to be dangerous, but are tremendously adaptive, hugely entrepreneurial. They are problem solvers deep in their bones, and they need to be given the opportunity when you would have thought, oh, I can't hire anybody because I can't find what I'm looking for. Well, just stop thinking about this old model of a job description that is requiring these things that have nothing to do with success in the job, and instead look at the problems that we solve and look for people who are great problem solvers. Absolutely. <clears throat> Those are excellent points and excellent uh, suggestions and advice for decision makers at all levels, uh, even if they are kids or young adults or parents or employers. Those are excellent you know, points to remember. And you are right that you know, this is an amazing time to be alive. There is so much changing, so many opportunities are there. While it is turbulent, it is still an amazing time to live in because as the world you know, redefines and redesigns all their systems 
and we technology is giving us these powerful tools to solve big problems there is you know it's just the idea imagination and your in creativity and entrepreneurship uh, that would allow you to take the control in your hands and solve the big problems and not accept the status quo so it is an absolutely amazing time so thank you so much gary for participating in this roundup today we appreciate your thoughtful insight on the future of work and our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the unique analysis on forces of automation and disruption that will help them understand the coming tomorrow of work and the workforce so even if a single individual or entity can understand the technology trends the automation trends the disruption and the future of work and workforce based on the understanding they received from the discussion we had today this discount of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that thank you so as work is being redefined redesigned and reinvented the battle between human workforce and machine workforce begins risk groups cybersecurity geosecurity and space security risk research centers are created for this very reason to identify evaluate and manage the security risk facing nations its government industries organizations and academia in cyberspace geospace and space we at risk group believe that risk management security and peace they walk together hand in hand though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of management of conflict and it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two all three concepts feed into each other we believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secured for everyone across nations tradition becomes our security so if we build a culture of managing risk effectively it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace let's manage the existing and emerging risks together for more information on the risk roundups to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast please go to riskpolicy.com and do not forget to subscribe and share until next time i'm jayshree host of risk roundups signing off see you next time thank you